Hi, I'm Jeff Lee, the host of the Building Forward podcast. I'll be speaking with the building industry's most thoughtful leaders on the technologies and business models transforming productivity in the built environment. In other words, data, analysis, and big ideas with a hard hat. Thanks for stopping by. Let us know what you think and what keeps you up at night. The Building Forward podcast is produced in partnership with Jeldwin Windows and Doors. Visit Jeldwin's professional portal at professionals.jeldwin.com for assistance with your 2019 projects. You'll find product comparison tools, how-to videos, and case studies, plus information on Jeldwin's extensive selection of windows, patio doors, entry, and interior doors. That's professionals.jeldwin.com. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with C.R. Harrow, Vice President of Innovation at Meritage Homes. CR is one of the most recognizable voices in the world of innovation in housing, and he and I had a chance to chat at the Housing Leadership Summit. We discussed how Meritage has taken some of the industry's biggest disruptors and turned them into opportunities, creating a better quality of life for the people who buy their homes. Here's our conversation. CR Harrow, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be here. Can you start off by introducing yourself and your role at Meritage Homes? Sure, I have a made-up job. I am the Vice President of Innovation, which I got to make up myself. I've been there for 10 years with Meritage Homes, and my job has been kind of progress both the industry and Meritage specifically into improving value and to being an internal disruptor to evolve to be relevant for what housing is going to become in the future. Tell me a little bit about Meritage's mission and, and what sets you apart. So we've been around about 35 years. Our CEO is, uh, was the founder of the company, so we're still very much an entrepreneurial, even though we're the seventh largest home builder in the US, we're still very entrepreneurial. And my job and the mission of Meritage are kind of the same, which is to create a new standard for uh, the quality of life for the people that live in our home. So we've got kind of a rallying slogan of life built better. And it's our challenge of one, recognizing that the products that we build are really significant contributors to the quality of life for the people that buy our products. We're responsible for this middle piece, like we need to be trusted experts in the way we bring that product to the market. And a big piece of what we're trying to do is to reimagine from a blank sheet of paper what's the best house we could build if we didn't have all the preconceptions that the industry kind of has carried along for the last couple hundred years. What have you learned by taking that, that viewpoint of looking at it as kind of a blank sheet and, and building it from the ground up? That the gap between what the industry does and what it could be is massive. That, that the opportunities to use different materials, to perform better, to use different labor, all of it has tremendous opportunity, which is great and scary. It's great because there's all these opportunities to add value, and it's scary because the gap means that there's a tremendous opportunity for this industry to be disrupted. And we can either do it to ourselves and catch up with our potential, or we can have somebody come in, recognize the potential, and upend what we do for a living and for our customers. I'm particularly interested in the way Meritage approaches the need for energy efficient homes, particularly net zero homes, and especially in California, because you guys have been doing it for a while. So why has that been a focus? When I first started a decade ago saying, what could we do to create a unique value? What could we do to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace? Energy efficiency was an easy value proposition, right? We could reduce thousands of dollars of operating costs for our buyers, which over, if you think about it over mortgage, we could add $100,000 worth of value to our buyers by reducing wasted heating and cooling costs, inefficient lighting, inefficient appliances, use better windows. So for a couple dollars of investment, we're making $10 worth of return. So it made all the sense in the world, and we were seeing consumers give us buying signals that they were ready to differentiate product based on energy efficiency. 
So we partnered with the EPA and we partnered with the Department of Energy and we looked at best building practices for residential but also then commercial and then also in Europe to really look at what is shelf ready, what is shovel ready, and what could we bring to the market that our suppliers and our trade bases and our customers could all perceive. Because you know, I'm a biologist, a chemist, and engineer. The stuff in my head is not all shovel ready. It's not all ready for mainstream. And so we had to have some discipline around what my boss tells me, I can only be two steps ahead of my consumer. right? Even though I can go five, they can't see that far, and my trades aren't ready for that much. And so I know where we're going, but we have to be disciplined to pull everybody along, our customers and our industry and our suppliers all along with us. What are some of the challenges of building to that efficiency level, and what were some of those things that, that weren't quite shovel-ready in the beginning? Was it, was it the uh, experience of your labor pool? Was it the materials? Was it other things? It was an exercise in let's paint a compelling vision for our trades on why they want to go on a journey with us, half of them leaving um, because they didn't want to go on that journey with us. Um, and then the other half that's staying, everybody had to really tighten their belt and, and understand that we are investing in being successful for the future, that they needed these skill sets to be ready for evolving codes. They needed these skill sets to differentiate from other trade members. We needed the same thing and that we were all gonna take a little bit of pain by being the first people out there to do that. So it was absolutely something to give my CEO a tremendous amount of credit for, because it's easy for me to think of these crazy ideas, but he had to commit a, you know, 18 markets to this change and disrupt the way we had built and, and were very successful in building. And so it, it took the suppliers and the trades and us as a company to jump in the deep end and commit to staying there. And there, and there are a lot of different ideas that are happening in Europe. What were some of the things that you took back from kind of that, that study, at least? So the, the, there's three places that I look to that I think are informed of a better than what we do in the States. Germany has incredibly expensive energy. And so they have reached an economy of scale and better windows and better insulation and, and really building low-waste thermal envelopes because of how expensive their energy is. They could justify spending on these better construction methods and these better construction materials, which drove down the cost of those construction methods and materials. So they had a nice path forward to the building science behind good building science. Japan has always led in manufacturing, right? Home building in the US is still one of the very few handcrafted things where 100 people do 1,000 things to build one house. And in Japan, they spend more in R&D than the entire US housing industry does combined. And so they're much better at saying, we're gonna build this house to 1 16th of an inch tolerance or 1 half of a millimeter tolerance, and we're gonna do it exactly right and then do it again and then do it again and do it again. Just like they disrupted the auto industry, uh, they do the same theory for, for construction in the US. And so looking at their manufacturing discipline, I thought is, is an aspirational direction to pull US housing industry for. And then last, France, they think about total cost of ownership. So when you buy a home in France, they give you the list price of the house and the operating cost of the house. And so buyers are able to select a home based on its true cost. What is it gonna cost me every month for my family to live in this house? Instead of a poorly insulated single pane window house and a well insulated dual triple pane windows with a high sear HVAC, this may cost a third less to operate but cost $1,000 more, but on a monthly basis, this actually is $1,000 less. 
So France gives people the transactional ability to make better decisions when they're buying performance instead of just commodity. And have you taken that back and used that in the way that you talk about efficiency with your customers? We do. We had to learn a lot about how to talk to consumers about this. So the first thing we learned was uh, don't let CR talk to the customers. Um, because I talked to building sites. I talked about Sear and Merv, and I tried to make everybody understand how to be a good builder, and I lost them. What we learned was you have to talk about the things that a 36-year-old mom with three kids cares about. I want to keep your family safe. I want to keep your family healthy. I want to save you money so you have better vacations and need better restaurants. Right? How do I create a home that resonates at an emotional level with a better quality of life? And I can do that, but I need to inspire them that they can choose that. And then I can show them how it's done. Or I can validate the benefits, but the features are not the important part, it's the benefit. And so once we learned that, we finally started learning to talk to our customers and understanding the gaps we had in the industry. So we started really participating in uh, energy efficient appraisals because it, it's one of the big influencers of the perception of value for buyers. So we need all these better windows and better insulation and solar panels to be reflected in the appraisal process. And we started educating realtors because we know my 36-year-old mom of kids is looking to realtors as their expert. And their experts didn't know about all the stuff we were doing. So we had, to, we had to train the influencers of the buyers to help them make better decisions. And then the gap that's left that we've kind of talked about, that the, 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 the French um, business model is we have to get the value of the reduced operating cost in the mortgage transaction. We have to have viable energy efficient mortgages. We have them on paper, but nobody's underwriting to them. So we really need the $80,000 of utility savings I'm gonna provide for a customer over that 30 year mortgage to affect their, their ratios. So that's interesting. So there's a there's a financial you know way to attack this, but I assume that there's also a production side of this. I mean, does does building a high performance home have to be more expensive, or are there um, production solutions that you guys have kind of attacked it with to make high performance homes more affordable? That's definitely where we've had to live, right? Because we don't have a consistent use of the appraisal standards, because we don't have a consistent energy efficient mortgage which captures the value, we've had to be very, very competitive with conventional building. And so there's economies of scale, right? If we commit as a builder to say, we're only gonna use better HVAC designs and only higher SEER systems, well, I buy 18,000 of them, I can help pull those into a more mass production. If I'm gonna use better windows, well, I buy 50,000 of those, I can pull those and the reason I come to a lot of these industry events is if I can inspire other builders to create the same value so they can compete with us, well now we've got a supply chain that's serving this voluntary better than standard and instead of it being 10% more, it's 2% more. We can cover the 2% more. So is there a, a product solution to building efficient homes more productively or is it, you know, are there are components and panels part of the solution? Um, yes. So there's products, right? There's, there's better windows, there's better glazing in those windows, there's thermal breaks in the framing of those windows. So there's a tremendous amount of components. But then there's how do we efficiently, you know, just like consumers just care about the benefits, not the features, as a builder, I have to deliver a finished beautiful house that's usable and durable, um, and people don't care how I get there. But with the labor force kind of uh, aging out and not being replaced, with technology opportunities to build better through 
CAD designs and BIM and BOM and, and computer-aided drafting and artificial intelligence and, and being able to build things in a factory with an accuracy level that's tough to replicate with a skill saw in the mud. There's tremendous opportunity not just to challenge the materials, but to challenge the entire way we build a house to deliver higher quality and, and affordability and lower risk because it's more durable. So one of the, one of the things I learned from uh, somebody who came up on this journey with me, you know, we were building these model homes trying to create economies of scale for new technologies. And it actually spawned an entire industry of building insulated concrete panel homes. And the guy who does that used to work with me. He's been really successful, and I heard him talk, and I'm like, damn it, I should have learned that. I shouldn't have to learn this from this guy. I respect the hell out of him. And what he learned was by changing the materials, he got to change the trades that utilize the materials, and he got to reset the rules. And that was what's so important is if you keep going back to our existing entrenched framers and try to get them to change what makes them successful, that, they, that makes them feel safe, it's very difficult. But if you start with that blank sheet of paper again and say, I need a structurally sound wall that meets wind resistant and that has uh, this sort of carrying capacity and I'm gonna build it in a factory and deliver it on site, now you have a very open possibility in who does that building, what materials they use for that building, and how I even design it. And with that change, it really enables you to move much faster and more nimbly than if you constantly kind of force the horse to water he doesn't want to drink. Yeah, I love that idea of resetting the rules. And, and you talk about innovations like BIM and artificial intelligence. Have those already reset the rules, or do you see that, that coming? They are agents of disruption. You know, they, they're back to the beginning of this conversation, which is there's this massive gap between what the core industry does and what its potential is. So is there BIM bomb robots and artificial intelligence that would massively improve the functionality, the durability, and the consistency of the way we build homes? Yes, there is. Are they mainstream? No, they're not. Could somebody come in and with enough capitalization grab market share and profitability by leveraging these potentials? Yeah, that's the only thing that keeps me up at night is that we're not, as an industry, extracting the benefit of what we would if we reimagined ourselves from a blank sheet of paper. And yes, there is a, uh, there's a reason for that, right? I mean, that the tried and true method of building homes, we're really efficient at it. And we've got, you know, 99.9% .9 of our trades are aligned to execute that. And so I understand why this train rolls very straight down the track. But the problem is, it's not nearly as effective at delivering what a buyer wants which is a healthy, comfortable, efficient, durable, valuable home. When that's all you concentrate on, you'd build something different. And that's great and that's scary. In terms of solar in particular, you know, that's been a big conversation topic with California kind of mandating adoption. Are there ways builders are going to have to learn to incorporate that into their homes more cost effectively? I think so. I think some of that die is set. So the good news is in the last 10 years, the cost of solar has come down, the cost of utilities have come up, and now solar is actually from day one cash positive. It's like having an ATM in your bank that spits out free money, right? It's great. Um, so there's no struggle with the value proposition. The challenge is A, do buyers know it? B, can builders effectively incorporate it? And because there's this continual gap of first cost and true value, 
the solution for the industry has been, well, we're not going to depend on buyers to understand enough to buy it and roll it into the mortgage. We're going to lease it or we're going to do a power purchase agreement. And I used to not like it um, because the best value is to roll it in the mortgage, but that value has gotten compressed because when you have a lessor, they're going to repair broken panels. They're going to fix failed inverters. They're going to come out and replace a panel that gets broken by a neighbor's baseball. So that's got a lot of intrinsic value to it. So I've warmed quite a bit to leases. And I think that when you think about your lease payment is 80 bucks a month and it produces $90 worth of energy for you, it's nothing but good. And so we're already taking our Southern California buildings and moving to a standard lease included everywhere, every time, and knowing we're gonna have to chop some wood with the average buyer to help them understand, yes, you have an $80 lease that's gonna reduce your operating cost $90, so we did something for your benefit. So we're gonna have to have that conversation, but it's what I do for my grandma, so I'm happy to do it for everybody. What do you see as the single biggest challenge affecting the building industry as a whole? Um, not starting with a blank sheet of paper, right? It's really that, um, I had it explained to me by a psychologist, which is the guy in the corner office of the top 50 builders has a lot of zeros in his bank account. And what he made him successful, her successful, was the behaviors that made all those zeros. They have no incentive to change that behavior because it made them successful. That's a trap, right? That makes you want to keep doing what made you successful. And it works for a small amount of time. But what's happening in you know, um, AI, what's happening in material science, what's happening outside of the home building industry is evolving so quickly. That gap, that gap is constantly just looming to me as a disruption to the industry. And so that gap is the opportunity, but that gap is the risk of not availing yourself of the opportunity and becoming irrelevant. We talked a little bit about it right before we started. The thing that I ask all executives is, is your company in 10 years gonna run like it is now? And universally everybody says no. I said, okay, we've now recognized we're irrelevant. What are we gonna do about it? And that's a tough conversation because there, it's easy to say that, no, we'll be something different in 10 years, but it's not easy to say, hey, you got to be planning that right now if you're going to change your company to be relevant in 10 years. You have, to be, you have to be laying down the plans for that today. Has the skilled labor shortage become another one of those necessities that's, that's breeding innovation? It's past necessity. Like, you know, when people talk about, we're going to have to think about how to address the skilled labor shortage, um, we needed to do something drastic five years ago. So talking about it seems a little ludicrous, but we have to, right? Because we, we didn't solve it five years ago and we still haven't solved it today. But there's no getting around the fact that the average skilled labor force, I think is 58, and five retire for every one that comes in. And so not only are they retiring and aging, but they're not being replaced. And we will not be able to deliver well-built homes, especially with the kind of performance we're evolving to require out of those homes tomorrow. So we have to address how we build it. And, and I don't think it can just be, hey, we're going to try to talk to a bunch of 12-year-olds before they get out of high school about the fact that trades are actually really cool and it's nice to see something you build and, and, and all the things that people should go into trades for. Um, it's not going to fix it. We have to create a new industry that's interesting to 22-year-olds.
and that's going to involve a computer screen and not being out in the middle of an Arizona sun at, in August. And it's going to have to have a cool factor and there's probably going to have to be, you know, the same thing that you get when you go to Silicon Valley startups. And um, that's going to be different than builders have ever done before. But if you ask me, hey, what it's going to look like in 10 years, it's going to be that a builder kind of looks and feels a lot like what it looks like to work in Silicon Valley now. What areas of innovation or technology at Meritage or even within the industry are you most excited about? Um, I'm really excited about the scalability. So we started building with panelization. So whether it's insulated concrete panels that are pre-cut by a computer and then delivered to site that are stronger and airtight and watertight and don't have something to mold, or new materials coming out of, you know, with Dow and DuPont coming together, some of these new materials for weather resistance and higher performance and the chemistry that we're getting exposed to as a big building science geek, the potential for our homes to not rust, not rot, not swell, you know, to, to deliver true uh, strength and resiliency into the marketplace. Um, that's at the edge, um, but it only is at the edge because the 1% of people that are aware of it are building that way. And as we create scale, um, those 36-year-old moms with kids tell their 36-year-old moms with kids' friends, and people change their expectation of what good looks like, and it all comes to the middle. So I think what I'm most excited about is the stuff that I would build right now for my grandma is going to become available to everybody, and I'm going to be around to see it. What makes you optimistic about the building industry in the years ahead? So we're sitting at the Housing Leadership Summit. And it's executives from all over the country that get together and talk about problems. But what's really nice is they also talk about best practices on places they've solved their problems. And they share it with their competitors. And every year, we take these massive strides as an industry by applying the solutions to these one-off problems we heard the year before. And the fact that we are adaptive and understand that we're not executing to our full potential and want to be competitive and better than the guy sitting next to me at the table, that drives the adoption of really interesting innovation. So even though I'm super critical of our industry for not evolving quick enough, I've also seen it evolve quite a bit. And I've also seen a readiness to be relevant and to be competitive, let's be honest. And, and that, with enough key players of, of painting a clear picture of what the best, or at least what relevancy looks like, I think the industry will adopt those standards. And that, it makes me happy that, you know, I can send a best friend or a relative out uh, in the very near future to get the best that I know how to build in the marketplace. And there's way smarter people than me out there pulling the same sleigh, so that means that the best they know how to build is gonna trump that in the near future. Thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks again for stopping by the Building Forward podcast. Let us know what you think by emailing me at buildingforward at hanleywood.com. This podcast was produced by me, Jeff Lee, and Rob Grauert. 